A few years ago, during Easter, someone asked me this question. She said, I know why Jesus died, uh, but why is it important that Jesus had to rise from the dead? I have thought about that question quite often since uh, the person asked me that question. And I've come to realize that different people phrase this question differently. Sometimes uh, people ask it like this. I know Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, but what does the rising of Jesus from the dead save me from? Or sometimes they put it like this. How does the resurrection of Jesus benefit me today and in the world to come? In other words, what is the point of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday? What is the point of Easter? This morning, I want to show you why the resurrection of Jesus matters to all of us. We've looked at why, the why Good Friday matters. We looked at that on Friday. Today, I want us to show you why the resurrection of Jesus matters to all of us. And how we, as followers of Jesus, should respond to this earth-shaking event. And to help us do this, we are going to look at one of the four eyewitness accounts of the, of the resurrection of Jesus. Please turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 1 to verse 18. That's the passage we are looking at today. John 20, verse 1 verse 18. There are just three truths uh, in this portrait of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus that helps us to see that I want to share. There are more truths than three, but there are three truths I just want to share with you from this portrait uh, that helps us to see why Jesus rose from the dead. And the first truth we observe from this passage is this. Death comes to all of us. Death comes to all of us. That's the first truth. It is very early Sunday morning. Uh, the Jewish Sabbath uh, has finished. Uh, we think it's about perhaps 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. now. Uh, the Jewish Sabbath finished a few hours ago. And Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, is on her way to the tomb of Jesus. And we read this in verse 1 of John 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Let's just pause there. Let us note that this is not Mary, the prostitute, going to the tomb of Jesus. This is Mary who had seven demons driven out of her by our Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke tells us that as Mary goes to the tomb, she's going to the tomb of Jesus with other women. Mary is on the mission to finish the burial preparations, which could not be done on Good Friday because of the, we might say, the Jewish lockdown around Sabbath, because of the Jewish laws that prevented her and other women from taking forward those burial preparations. And so Mary now is, has got up very early and she's going there with other women. 
And we imagine as Mary walks to the tomb, her face is beaten with grief. On Good Friday, Mary saw her beloved rabbi, the Lord Jesus Christ, disfigured and then brutally murdered. Now, some of you have experienced going for a body viewing. A loved one has passed away and you have been called in to go and do a body viewing. It is the last time you are going to see the face of your loved one before they are buried. Those are heartbreaking moments, aren't they? They are moments filled with raw pain. It's not just the pain of loss. It is also the haunting reminder that death comes to all of us. You see, animals don't hold funerals. Every living thing dies, but only human beings die with a ceremony. You see, unlike the rest of creation, we are haunted by the prospect of death. And this is why, as we look around the country, we can see that gloom at this moment has descended on this nation, and indeed around the world. It's descended on this nation because the daily reports of how many have died from the coronavirus is, is taking a mental toll on all of us. It is depressing to having to wake up to that every day. We hate seeing death or hearing about it because it reminds us that we will not ourselves live on this rock, on this planet forever. You see, one day your corpse will need a Mary of Magdala to cremate for burial. And you need to be constantly reminded of this fact. You, may, you might say, well, Chola, you know, I know that. Why are you, on top of what I'm, what I'm hearing in the news, seeing on the news, why are you then reminding me, especially on Resurrection Sunday, of this fact of my death, which is to come? Why do we need this reminder that death is inescapable? Well, you need the reminder, why? To stop you living like this, to stop you living like this is the only life that you have. Because that's how many of us live. We live like we only live once. We live like once we are dead, that's it. But the truth of the matter is that all of us live beyond death. Death is an extension of life. And every one of us will live beyond death. The, the only question is this. Where will you spend your eternity after death? Are you going to spend it in the loving arms of the Jesus you loved while you were on earth? Or will you spend eternity separate from Jesus? Will God welcome you into his heaven and sit you with him? Or will you be far from God and suffering eternal torment with the devil and his angels? All of us have to answer that question. Now many of us are quick to say, I know where I'm going. I'm going to be with God. And we perhaps say that because we attend church. Or we say that because we become church members. We say that because we said the sinner's prayer. We say that perhaps because we were born in a Christian family. 
But you see, the Bible is clear that if you are leaning on any of those things as the basis for why you think you spend eternity with God, then you are seriously deluded. The Bible is clear that the only way for us to enter heaven is through the narrow gate of Jesus Christ, through the narrow gate of the cross. Acts 4 verse 12 says this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, except the name of Jesus Christ. You see, heaven is only for people who have placed themselves at the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. They have come before God. They have surrendered their life to Jesus. They have surrendered their life to God to save them from sin because Jesus has suffered the wrath of God in their place on the cross. It is people that can say, I am trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. He is death alone, not my goodness. It's people that can say, I am not a good person. I am not decent. I am a sinner, a depraved sinner. And because I'm a sinner, I'm trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to save me from sin. Because he has died for me. And you see, if you have not done that, if you have not come before God to surrender to God and through Jesus Christ, to lean only on the righteousness of Jesus and surrendering your life to God through Christ, then, then do that now, this very moment. Do that now before death swallows you to everlasting darkness. Turn from your sin. Leave your past behind you. Surrender your life to Jesus. Ask him to forgive your sin based on the death of Christ for you. And if you do that, this very moment, you, you will become a child of God. Your life with God in heaven will now be guaranteed. If death comes tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now, you know that your future is secure with God. So do it. Go to Jesus. Surrender your life to him. If you are already a follower of Jesus, you are of course ready to meet God when you die. Your life with God is already guaranteed. The question for you this morning I want you to think about is this. Yes, you are ready to meet God, but are you ready to leave people behind? The question for you is this. How are you preparing for your death? What legacy are you leaving behind? What legacy will you leave behind? I don't mean financial assets for your loved ones. A house, perhaps. Some inheritance for them. I don't mean those things. Those things can perish any moment like the Notre Dame. I am talking about your spiritual legacy. 
How will your children remember your faith? Will they say, Mommy or Daddy truly loved Jesus? And I want to know this Jesus for myself. How will the friends around you, colleagues, remember you? Will they say, you know, I used to work with a work colleague and she was bananas about Jesus. She loved Jesus, she put him first. And you know what? Now she's gone. I want to investigate that a bit more. You see, no one on their deathbed says, I should have paid more attention to my work. I should have paid more attention to my garden. I should have paid more attention to my chess hobby. I should have paid more attention to surfing the internet. No. Most followers of Jesus says, I wish I surrendered more to Jesus. On their deathbed, they say, I wish I surrendered more to Jesus. You see, the trauma of observing an autopsy is only beneficial if it is received as a warning to the living. Don't waste COVID-19. Don't waste any suffering in your life. As you see these deaths being announced on television, don't waste that. Use that as a warning from God that your life here is temporal. Use those, that depressing news you're seeing on the BBC, ITV, other channels to help you to focus on Christ, to help you to live for him, to help you live behind a spiritual legacy for the kingdom. Because we see here that death comes to everyone. That's the first truth we learned here. Death comes to everyone. So the question he raises then is this. Why then, if death comes to everyone, do followers of Jesus make a huge fuss about the death of Jesus? That's a fair question, isn't it? Why make a huge fuss about the death of Christ if in fact death comes to everyone? Well, the reason is this. It is that the death of Jesus is without equal. It is unique. And that is the second truth we learn in this gospel account of the resurrection of our Lord. The first truth is death comes to all. The second truth we learn here, it starts with a but. But the death of Jesus is without equal. The death of Jesus is without equal. Let's rejoin Mary outside that tomb of Jesus. As she has reached the tomb, we are taught, and as soon as she sees it, a problem multiplies. Let's read verse 1 again. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away, from the tomb. The tomb of Jesus, like all expensive tombs at this time, has been quarried out of rock and sealed with a large disc-like stone on Pilate's orders. But to Mary's surprise, the tomb is now empty. 
And the body is gone. What has happened? Mary is shocked, so she runs quickly to inform the hiding apostles of what has taken place. Let's read verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that is John, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have led him. You see, in Mary of Magdala's world, everyone dies and remains there. No one comes back from the dead. So the only explanation in Mary's mind is that the grave robbers have somehow managed to steal the body of Jesus. So Peter and John are hearing this and they are just as puzzled. And quickly they get up to go and investigate for themselves to make sense of what's going on. Let's read on verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that is John, and they were going towards the tomb. Now, John is writing this account late in his life, in his old age. And amazingly, it includes something unexpected. It's totally irrelevant from the, from the general narrative. It's in verse 4. Both of them, that is John and Peter, were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's not relevant. But the reason he includes it is that he wants us to know that he beats his old pal to the tomb. And you can picture John smiling as he writes this. It is a great personal touch that shows us nice little details like that that shows us all of this happened. This is true. And so John arrives first, we read, and let's see what happens. Let's read on verse 5 to 7. And stooping to looking, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the first cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, from John's careful description of the contents in the tomb, it is clear that the tomb has not been ransacked by grave robbers, as Mary of Magdala had feared. The linen clothes that had been wrapped around Jesus' body are literally lying in their folds. That's the original language. It is as if the body has just simply over evaporated through them. And we also see that the sweat cloth, the soldarium, that had been wrapped around Jesus' face, his first cloth, is folded separately. And again, that indicates he had been put there carefully. And as John the Apostle sees the evidence, it all comes together, doesn't it? Look at verse 8 to verse 10. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that is John, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as they did not understand the scripture 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. We should note in passing here that John believes Jesus is alive without seeing Jesus physically or John himself knowing his Bible very well. That's quite reassuring, isn't it? And this is teaching us that God is not against evidence-based conclusions about matters of faith. Faith is not a leap into the dark, which trusts God later. Is the followers of Jesus are not required to start each day with sort of cowboy shouts of Geronimo. No, true faith in Jesus means trusting in Jesus based on what we know about Jesus in the Bible, in history, and personal experience. And the more you and I believe in Jesus based on what we know to be true, the more we grow to understand, experience, trust, and know Jesus more. Now, that is a note in passing. The main point of the passage here is that John has discovered, like Mary or Magdala, that the death of Jesus is in a league of his own. It is a death without equal. You see, history has produced many great leaders, scientists, philosophers, thinkers, prophets. But once they got into the grave, they could not climb out. But Jesus of Nazareth differs from all of us. Why? Because his tomb is empty. That's what this passage is showing us. And you and I know, if you are familiar with the scriptures, as we've seen them in going through Mark, we know that the tomb here is not just empty. Jesus said it will be empty. And this is what makes his death without equal. You see, the extraordinary claim of the Bible is that everyone lives to die, but Jesus died to live forever. Jesus stepped in the ring with death and knocked death out. And that's why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate Easter because it reminds us that because we are true followers of Jesus, all true followers of Jesus worship a living Savior. Jesus is alive forever and ever. Amen. And because Jesus has defeated death, this is a big deal now for all of us. Why is it a big deal? Well, that's the third point of this narrative. It is a big deal because Jesus has defeated death, not for himself, but for us. And that's the third point. So the first point then is what? Death comes to all of us. To all of us. But the second point is, but, except the death of Jesus is without equal. The death of Jesus is without equal. That's the second point. Well, the final point then is the implication. Why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because of the third point. Jesus has defeated death, not for himself, but for us. 
So let's go back to Mary uh, outside the tomb. The camera now switches back to Mary. She's back at the empty tomb, still puzzled, and we read in verse 11 to verse 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. The disciples have gone home, but Mary remains weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Let's just pause there. The angels know Jesus is alive. So looking at Mary, they are puzzled by this. Mary puzzles them. Why? They're thinking to themselves, what are you crying about? This is not a funeral. They don't get it. And so they pose that question, woman, why are you weeping? The baffled Mary, who's of course baffled by this question, just about mumbles out an answer. Let's read on verse 13. She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. A wonderful touch of Mary's submission to Christ. They have taken away my Lord, my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. But before she can collect her thoughts and perhaps say a bit more, she senses someone behind her. Not in the tomb, someone outside the tomb. And we read in verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And as she turns, right, Jesus then speaks directly to her in verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, repeating the question of the angels, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Mary doesn't recognize Jesus in his risen form because she doesn't expect to see Jesus alive. She does not expect a corpse to come to life. So Jesus speaks again in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, she has heard our Lord's voice already, right? And, but now she hears. Now Jesus mentions her name, Mary, and immediately she recognizes him. Let's read on verse 16. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. We imagine, well, the text in verse 17 actually says, it implies that she immediately falls at the feet of Jesus and clings for dear life. She is not going to lose the Lord again. 
And Jesus responds, most likely with a smile. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What our Lord is saying is that, Mary, you don't have to cling or ought to me. I haven't yet left. You see me again. And then he tells her in verse 17. Let's read on verse 17. But Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and said to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. We need to pause there and take these words in. Because these words are the key to this entire passage. And they reveal for us three important glorious truths that Jesus just wants us to be reminded of. First of all, our Lord Jesus reminds Mary of Magdala and us and the disciples that he is God the Son returning back to God the Father. In fact, verse 17 says this, For do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, God the Father. And then he goes on to say, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Jesus is making clear he's God the Son returning to God the Father. That's the first reminder. Why is this reminder a big deal for us? Well, it is a big deal because of the second reminder our Lord gives us here. Did you notice that? He says, his Father is now our Father. I am ascending to my Father, he says, and your Father. Now, the Apostle John in this Gospel account has already told us this great truth. He told us in John 1, verse 12. He said this, But to all who did receive him, who received Jesus, who believed in his name, this is John 1, verse 12, he gave the right, that is Jesus, given the right to us to become children of God who were born, born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God, born again by God. John has already told us that Jesus has come to bring us into God's family, to make us children of God. And he returns to this theme here in the narrative in John 12, verse, John, John 20, verse 17, because he's pointing out that the resurrection of Jesus effectively is adding more flesh on why we truly are children of God. How is it that we can become children of God? Well, we are children of God because when Jesus died on Good Friday, God accepted his death as a perfect payment for our sin by raising the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead for us. So if you are trusting in Jesus, you are now a child of God because God has accepted the payment for sin on our account. 
God has now in Christ, if you have turned to Jesus, forgiven your sins by the death of Jesus. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, when he rose from the dead, you rose with him. And you now have a new life, no longer dead in your trespasses, but now living alive to God. Because Jesus, our Lord and Savior and King, is alive. This is why the resurrection of Jesus matters. It matters because it confirms that we are now family with God through Jesus. And we are family with God through Jesus by name and by our new nature. By name because just as a new adopted child, a human child, receives a new family name from his human adopted parents. We also have received a new name from God as children of God. The Apostle John returns to this theme in the first letter he wrote, First uh, John chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are. We are called children of God in Christ. We are children by name, but also we are children now by nature. Because as John told us in John 1 verse 12, we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, we are children by a new nature because our adoption in God's family, you see, is not like human adoption across races. God hasn't adopted us like the way a white couple, for example, would adopt a black child. When a white couple adopts a black child, the name of the child changes, right, in line with the parent's name. But that child remains racially different from the couple who have adopted him or her. Her in this case, my example. Right? The two remain racially different. That's not how God adopts us, adopts us in his family. We are not family with God like that. If you're trusting in Jesus, your fundamental nature inside has also changed. You have, if you like, a new spiritual skin. You have experienced a new spiritual birth. You have a new spiritual DNA. The very life of the triune God now flows through your spiritual veins. And just as you never stop being a member of your biological family, God will always also be your father. You will always be a member of the family of God. It can't be undone. Not even your sin can annul it. No matter what. It's a permanent, drastic change. No failure, no sin, no nothing. No powers in heaven or hell can change it. You are now permanently family with God. And think for a moment who this God 
who calls you his child is. This God who has brought you into his family. Think for a moment who that God is. Think of his character. Think of his attributes. This God is eternal, independent, unchanging, self-existent, self-sufficient, absolute in dominion. He's the most pure, the most holy, infinitely perfect, infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely just, and infinitely glorious. Beloved, because you are family with this amazing, super-duper, infinitely wonderful, oh, the great, there is no other beside him. Because you have him, this God. This wonderful God, you lack nothing. You lack nothing. All the blessings, all his merits are yours now in Jesus. And no one is going to love you or care for you more than this God does. No one is going to protect you more than this God does. No one is more trustworthy than this God. He's unchanging in his being. He's unchanging in his character. No one can keep you safer than him. He's omnipotent. No one can be so closer to you than him. He's always everywhere. He's omnipresent. No one knows you more than him because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows every inch of your life. He loves and cares for you as his very own. And you have all of this, you have this God in your life and all the blessings he brings because our Lord Jesus rose from the dead for us. So how then should we respond to this wonderful reminder from our Lord that we are now family with God by name and by our new nature? How do we respond to this? Well, how can we respond except surely to rejoice with the hymn writer? The hymn writer when she says, Once I was clothed in the rags of my sin, wretched and poor, lost and lonely within. But this wondrous compassion, but with wondrous compassion, the king of all kings, in pity and love, took me under his wing. And then the hymn writer breaks in her chorus. She says, Oh yes, oh yes, I am a child of the king. His royal blood now flows in my veins. And I, who was wretched and poor, now can sing. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I am a child of the king. That's how we should respond. With adoration. With thanks. But sadly, many of us forget that we are beloved children of God. We may sing hymns and say, God is our Father, but the truth of the matter is that most of us who profess faith in Jesus live functionally as spiritual orphans. You know, the behavioral experts, the experts in this, in this area of orphans and other issues, they tell us that orphans always want to take care of themselves. Many orphans feel they cannot depend on anyone else. 
So you find that orphans feel they must be strong all the time. Orphans constantly crave to be taken in and loved, but doubt they ever will. They doubt that they will ever be accepted. And you know what? Many followers of Jesus live like that. We treat the Christian life as a point-scoring system where we must score at least B+, for God to love and accept us. Beloved, this push to be accepted by God through doing things for him, surely, in fact, it breaks our Father's heart. Because I think, I, I, because it, it does, isn't it? And every parent would immediately recognize that. Because if you are a parent, you know that it would break your heart if your child tried to end your love. No parent wants a child to end their love. So what more our perfect loving father who has loved us from eternity past. It breaks his heart that we live trying to earn his love. When he has loved us through Christ. Beloved, the resurrection of Jesus is reminding us that God is our father because we are alive with Jesus. It reminds us, as Good Friday reminds us that it is finished, the Resurrection Sunday is reminding us that we are loved by grace. And through the grace of God, we have been made alive with Jesus. We are already in the family. We don't need to end God's love. He has always loved us. He is loving us. And will always love us. So today, come before God and plead for his grace to help you see how much God loves you and has already welcomed you into his family. And ask him to help you to spy you on, you see, to live as a child who belongs to his family. The final reminder, I said there were two reminders, three reminders. I've given you the first and the second. The third reminder that the Lord gives us in verse 17, when he says, I'm ascending to my Father, and your Father to my God, and your God. The third reminder from him is that he's our brother. And actually we see that at the beginning of verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and said to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father to my God, and your God. This entire episode, just Mary trying to cling to Christ and Christ saying, don't cling to me. And then him emphasizing that she's to go to his brothers. All of it is emphasizing a key point that Jesus is now our brother. Our Lord Jesus is our brother because our Lord Jesus remains 100% God and 100% man in his risen body. He's still our brother. He still shares our flesh. This is a bodily resurrection. And it is within this, it is with this risen body that our Lord Jesus has ascended into heaven for us. You see, the bodily resurrection of Jesus 
is the death of our fear of physical death. The world at the moment is gripped with the fear of the coronavirus. And as a believer, you probably are feeling a little bit fearful, if you're honest. You may not be afraid of death in of itself, but you probably share some fear of perhaps dying alone in one of those hospitals if you caught the virus. Or you may have a fear of the hardship you may leave behind if you are to die now. You knew at some point you were going to die, but you have no plans to die now, and there's no reason why you should. And you're worried that if you are to catch the virus and you are to die now, things will be very difficult for those you leave behind. We all have these sorts of fears about death. Uh, as believers, about not so much the death in of itself, but how we may die or the consequences of our death. How should we deal with these fears? Well, we don't. It's not up to us to deal with them. Jesus has already dealt with them. His resurrection says to us, His resurrection says to us, our physical death is already defeated. Yes, we will die someday, as all people do, but His resurrection says we will one day rise in new physical bodies, in new super-duper bodies. Because when Jesus comes, we shall be like him. Or when we are resurrected at the end of time, we shall be like the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the resurrection of Jesus, if you like, is the begins, is the first of a prototype of a new humanity, of a new race. His resurrection says to us, this physical, you, you too, you experience a physical resurrection. And you'll be renewed and refreshed and become like the Lord Jesus Christ, our brother. There is a new heaven and a new earth that awaits us. We'll live with Christ, reign with Christ. His ascension, actually, in this passage, I am ascending, is a guarantee of that. Because even now, as the Lord Jesus is sat in heaven, we are there sat mysteriously with him. Beloved, the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension says, we have a great future. And therefore, we do not need to fear death. No matter what happens to us, in Jesus, we have moved from the realm of death to the reign of life. As one writer puts it, Christ took with him into glory all his people upon his breast, uh, upon his breast, so that we are as secure as he is in the heavenly places. Christ took with him into glory all his people upon his breast, so that we are as secure as he is in the heavenly places now. That means we are safe in Jesus. In death and in life, Christ abides with us and we abide with him. 
And your responsibility now is just to be like Mary in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Like Mary, we must keep on believing. Mary has seen the resurrection. She believes it, and she's announcing it to others. She's living out this truth. And like Mary, we must keep on, we must believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And we must keep on believing that Christ is risen and is risen indeed. Does the resurrection of Jesus matter? That was the original question. Yes, it does. It matters because death will come to all of us. That's the first point. But in Jesus, we have seen that the death of Jesus is the death of death. That's why it is a death without recall. Jesus is alive. That was the second point. And because Jesus is alive, we who trust in Jesus are now children of God. Jesus has defeated death for us. We are risen with Jesus and we are safe in his hands. In life and in death. That's the third point. So therefore there is no need for us to fear death. Well, may the Lord bless the preaching of his word and may he make us rejoice in the resurrection that Christ has accomplished for us. Amen.